Hi, I'm Dan Primack, and welcome to Axios Recap, presented by Facebook. Today's Tuesday, December 15th. Stocks are up, temperatures in the Northeast are down, ahead of a major storm, and we're focused on the stalled economic stimulus, still. With vaccine distribution beginning this week, America can finally see the light at the end of the tunnel, and that's very good news. The bad news, though? That tunnel remains several months long, which is going to lead to economic pain and hardship for millions. For example, individuals on the verge of losing their enhanced unemployment benefits, or entrepreneurs whose businesses burned through their small business loans months ago, even though they're now facing renewed lockdowns. That's why almost every federal elected official agrees the country needs a new economic stimulus, and they felt that way for months. The details, though, have been devilish. The last best hope is a framework crafted by a bipartisan, bicameral group of legislators, including 11 U.S. senators. It's actually now been split into two bills, uh, one that includes the stuff almost everyone wants, and then a smaller one that includes the stuff that splits along party lines, like state and local aid, which is something Democrats want, and limited liability protections for schools and businesses, which Republicans want. This package, this proposal, began with a phone call after election night between Democratic Senator Joe Manchin of West Virginia and Republican Senator Susan Collins of Maine. In 15 seconds, we'll speak with Senator Manchin about the state of play and what comes next. But first, this. We're joined now by Senator Joe Manchin of West Virginia. Senator, let's just talk with kind of big picture probabilities here. I know you have a bill that's been split into two parts. How confident are you that one or both of those parts could actually get passed by both houses of Congress by the end of this week? Well, what we did, we took the $748 billion bill, which has 100% support, both Democrats and Republicans. And that one will pass. It has to, because this is an emergency relief COVID bill. And that mean emergency means that what do people lose by Christmas or the end of the year? All their lifelines are gone. Okay, the businesses are having more trouble because they're closing down more now because of the outbreak of the COVID. And this is not going to end probably until the second quarter, I would think, of next year. So this gets us up to April 1, first quarter. That's an emergency bill. The other bill basically is $160 billion for state and local, which they're hurting too. And we're trying to do that. I voted for both. My name's on both of them. But the other one has more concerns with Democrats and Republicans about basically the protections uh, against any type of lawsuits. And Democrats saying that's fine. I don't think we want anybody to be sued out of business, but we don't want to just throw caution to the wind and workplace safety, things of this sort. So they're trying to work through that. All the smart lawyers are trying to find language that they can either all agree to or confuse each other enough that they don't know what they've said. One of the two. So on that first one, on the larger package, you say the emergency COVID relief, the expanded unemployment benefits, uh, reauthorization of PPP, et cetera. You expressed that you're confident. Have you, say, spoken with Mitch McConnell about getting that on the floor this week? They're basically taking our bill and putting it into the omnibus bill, which has to pass at the end, you know, for us to have the government to continue the spending package. That's the end of the year omnibus bill. They have used they're using our template, our bill. They're taking our bill section by section because it's already been vetted. We already had legislative language written. It's ready to go. Can I ask so specifically either you or any of the other kind of, I guess it's 11 senators now, have any of you had direct conversations with McConnell to be sure it gets there? Yeah, and I've been talking to on the Democrat staff 
And uh, basically Lisa and Susan Collins and all and, and Cassidy and Portman have been working on their side and making sure that's the framework. They're going to acknowledge that today uh, as the framework they're working off of. I wonder, you know, the things that both sides agree on, as you say, that there's so much of this that both Democrats and Republicans agree on and have agreed on for months at this point. Monday morning quarterbacking a little bit. Was it a mistake, do you think, for Democrats to not take the so-called skinny bills that the Republicans were offering back in September, in October? Because since those were things that both sides agreed on and, and that money would be flowing already? Well, the money could have been flowing already, but the money is needed now. This is when it all expired. So why were they going to take something when it should have been a lot more? They started, if you remember, Daniel, this started basically with a $3 trillion deal called the Heroes, which is Nancy Pelosi's. Then she cut that down to $2 trillion. And then we had basically, Mitch McConnell had his Hills Act at $1.1 trillion, And that was in July. Sent us home for recess in August, which we should have never gone home. And then we come back after recess in September. He's got a new bill on called the Skinny at $500 million. And I'm thinking, wow, that's not dealing in good faith. Every economist, everybody has, has looked and seen the need we had to keep this economy going. And the lowest I ever saw anyone go to was 1.5 trillion. So here we are. And I'm understanding they start negotiating with Mnuchin and Nancy Pelosi. And <clears throat> Mnuchin, before the election, came in for 1.8. For whatever reason, that was turned down. And then basically we were to stand still. The election's over. The election is over on the 4th. I call my friend Susan Collins and congratulate her on her victory on the 5th. We start talking, says, Susan, we got to do something. This is, they're not going anywhere. And this is a stalemate, they're not even talking. So she said, you're right. So we start talking to all of our friends, at least some are that. We have a dinner. Then a week or two later, at least is after we'd all been talking at Lisa Murkowski's house. And we have four Democrats and four Republicans. And that's how all this started. And we committed to each other. We would stay bipartisan all the way through. So with that, we had Mark Warner. We had basically on a Democrat self, myself, Mark Warner. We had uh, Gene Shaheen and we had Dick Durbin. On the Republican side, we had uh, Lisa Murkowski, Susan Collins. We had Bill Cassidy and uh, Mitt Romney. So we had four and four, that was, the, that was the first eight. And then we grew immediately from that and brought in the problem solvers from the house, Josh. So we had Doc Hamill now, we had Josh Gottheimer and Tom Reed. Then it grew from that some more because people said, we want something to happen. That's how we got to seven. When you say you want people want something to happen, you are getting some pushback, to be honest, on both sides, Bernie Sanders, Josh Hawley. So from the left and the right, specifically on this issue of direct checks, which we saw in the CARES Act you know, back in April, what's the best argument for not including that in this bill? Well, the only argument that we have is not just the best argument. It is the argument. It's the common sense approach. This is an emergency bill. If a person still has a paycheck, a person still has a job and they have money coming to their home and there's an unemployed person who's going to lose everything at the end of December. They got no job to go to. We've had everybody closed down because of all the jobs and economy has gone away. And basically the pandemic is back and ravaging. So they have nothing. Which one's the emergency? But the same argument could have been made back in April, correct? Oh, yeah, you could make the same argument. That's what, you know, when we did another extension, you know, the big bill you're talking about. Well, right, because I mean, I'm saying you supported the, the CARES Act. That same thing was true, right? There were people who hadn't lost their jobs in April who continued to get paychecks, but we still sent out checks to those people back in April. They were trying to stimulate the economy, okay? But when we get a, we had a deadlock, Daniel, there's a deadlock and nothing was moving. When you have a deadlock, you can't throw 
everything and think everything's going to stick and everybody's going to go along with it. So we knew what we had to deal with. It took us two weeks to negotiate what would be our, our amount to get to $908 billion. That took two weeks of back and forth, putting the emergencies together, putting what people wanted and desires together. We would take an extra 300 in a heartbeat. That's $1,200 a person. That's $1.2 trillion to continue to stimulate this economy. Joe Biden's coming in in January, our president. He will evaluate it immediately, talk to his economists, and come with a plan forward. Speaking of that plan forward, has your group spoken with Biden about that plan forward and what he wants to do after January 20th? We have not. He's waiting to see what we do right now, if we can even fill the gap that's going to be left. He's going to be in one heck of a precarious situation. This country will be in a free fall if we don't pass this COVID emergency relief package now. Speaking of which, that second piece, the state and local, including the liability, you talk about the lawyers who are trying to figure it out right now. Is there any particular reason for Americans to believe that that piece will indeed get passed, at least before January 20th, no matter who wins in Georgia? You're talking about the state and local? Correct, the state and local. First of all, so you'll know, the Republican, my Republican friends, truly, uh, the majority of their their, uh, uh, caucus does not believe that the states and local need any money. They truly believe that. So we've got them and we've showed them. I said, this is based on need. Before it went out on population, whatever the population was, that's what you got. The smallest states all got 1.25 billion. Then everything was based on need. This one doesn't, this one's based on need. And I'm saying, listen, if there's a need in an emergency, you might not have a need in your state, but I can tell you a lot of other states are gonna lose frontline service, first responders, essential workers. They can't keep this program alive and they're gonna have to tax the, the, the living crap out of people just to try to keep anything surviving. So we got them to agree to that. Okay, that was a big move, but they wanted to make sure the need base was there. That means what's your revenue loss? What's your expenses COVID related? So they just can't get money. They got a third, a third of the money went out on population, not 100%. The rest of the two thirds money went based strictly on need, Daniel, strictly on need. Back over the summer, it seemed, at least from the outside looking in, that most of the negotiations were going on between Nancy Pelosi and Steve Mnuchin uh, in the White House. At this point, is the White House any tangible part of these discussions? Everybody's been kept abreast. This has not been done in secrecy. No, I don't mean secrecy, but are they actually at the table? No, leadership's not at the table. Mitch and Chuck and his staff is not at the table. Okay, neither is the White House. But everything that we have done and when we come to an agreement, we want them to know what we've agreed on so that it's not going to be a surprise. They've been kept abreast of all the things that we've been able to agree on, which I think they've been pleased because for whatever reasons, they couldn't get to that point under their negotiations, but we were able to break through. And that's really what bipartisanship, it, you know, bipartisanship's uncomfortable because you have to have concessions. You got to be willing to get compromise and people don't want to compromise because everybody's in a tribal man, m- mode. My God, my side, I'm on this tribe and my tribe's right and we're going to win. I'm sorry. Government doesn't work that way in America. Final question for you. Speaking of that tribalism, possible hypothetical, we're the Democratic candidates to win the two Senate seats in Georgia. You'd have a 50-50 Senate. There's a perception that you, you, Senator Manchin, would become arguably the swing vote in the Senate, the most important senator there. How do you kind of conceive of that? And are you excited about that prospect? Are you nervous about that prospect? not excited or nervous. I'll just continue to do what I've always done. I'm the most centrist voter out of 535 people in Congress. Do you know that? If you look at the vote, I'm about 50-50. 
How can you be in one party or the other party and still vote 50-50? Well, where I come from, I'm, I'm a de- proud West Virginia Democrat. Uh, I've never met a Democrat that was always right. And I've never met Republicans that were always wrong. And I've liked a lot of their ideas. So I always say this, if I can go home and explain it, Daniel, I can vote for it. I don't care if it's a, a hardcore Democrat position. If it makes no sense back home in West Virginia, I can't vote for it to support it. And I've kept to that. And I will continue to keep to that. So I've told him, I'm not voting to end the filibuster. I will not vote. I will not vote to pack the court. So if I'm the one vote, I want you to know up front, that's what's going to happen. So don't get upset. Senator Joe Manchin of West Virginia, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Daniel. Enjoyed it. Welcome back. What we're watching today is the FDA. After a staff report endorsed emergency use authorization of Moderna's COVID-19 vaccine. This is a report that will be used to help brief the FDA's group of outside medical advisors who are scheduled to meet this Thursday to review Moderna's application. In other FDA news, the agency also is recommending that those who get Pfizer or Moderna's vaccine continue to be monitored for cases of Bell's palsy, a condition that kind of freezes half your face and causes it to drop making it look a little bit like you had a stroke. Now, there were eight cases of Bell's palsy during the clinical trials, half from Pfizer's and half from Moderna's, some of which have resolved themselves. The FDA says it has not been able to show a causal relationship, perhaps in part because one of the afflicted patients actually got the placebo, but the agency says it will continue to investigate. And finally today, we are watching the European Union, which proposed new regulations on big tech companies. Specifically, this is aimed at so-called gatekeeper companies, which would be precluded from doing things like favoring their own products over those of rivals. Were companies to break these new competition rules, they could be fined up to 10% of their revenue. Axios' Ashley Gold reports that the tech companies view these rules as more restrictive than anything they faced in the U.S. and also tougher than anything else Europe has previously proposed. And we're done. Big thanks for listening. And to my producers, Tim Shovers and Naomi Shaven, have a great national cupcake day. And we'll be back tomorrow with another Axios Recap.